Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everyone? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine expert. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book, and The Inflammation Spectrum, which is newly on paperback, and Ketotarian. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, the books, and there's lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. All right, let's get to today's guest. She is one of my favorite people. She is freaking brilliant. You're going to learn so much from her. Dr. Ellen Vora. Ellen Vora, MD, is a holistic psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health. Considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root, Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale University and her medical degree from Columbia University, and she is board certified in psychiatry and integrative holistic medicine. Stay tuned to the entire conversation with Dr. Vora, because at the end, I answer another one of your burning health questions in an Ask Me Anything. All right. This is Dr. Ellen Vora's Art of Being Well. Dr. Ellen freaking Vora. <laughs> That's your full name. Where the heck have you been all my life? It's been too long. Uh, Will freaking Cole. I'm so happy to be <laughs> sitting at least Zoom across from you and seeing your beautiful face. Uh, likewise, my friend. This is going to be such a good conversation. Let's get into it. I want to jump right in. But I mean... To that point, it's been so weird. Like all my friends and and colleagues in this space, it's been a while since we've all been together physically. Yeah. Yeah. I dream of, you know, can we be in Arizona looking at a sunset and nerding out on wellness and drinking a kale smoothie together? It'd be really, (laughs) it'd be nice. 
oh, the good old days from the before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopeful again soon, you know? So let's talk about this beautiful book from the cover to the content. It is so amazing from beginning to end. The, the anatomy of anxiety, understanding and overcoming the body's fear response. Now that we've got gotten everybody's attention, can you frame what the numbers look like of anxiety? How many people are being impacted by this, this problem? Yeah. So the numbers were staggering even before the pandemic. And we sort of have these humongous numbers, which I think, I don't even think statistics are all that good at telling us. It's hard to know things, right? But we have Mm -hmm. numbers in the sort of 40 million people struggling with anxiety. I think that what the numbers don't tell us is the, the feeling on the street, which is that if you look around yourself in the pandemic, you've mm-hmm. probably grappled with anxiety at some point in this stretch of time. And your friends, your family, your colleagues, very few among us have really made it through unscathed because this is such an anxiety generating experience for us to all go through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the statistics are going to lag behind reality right now. There's so many aspects of the pandemic that are contributing to all sorts of mental health struggles. And I think anxiety figures most prominently among them. Mm-hmm. And your book eloquently really breaks down two main types of anxiety. One that you call false anxiety. Let's talk about that first before we go to the other one. What is What exactly is false anxiety? Yeah, I really want to credit the woman named Julia Ross who wrote the book, The Mood Cure. And that's what first opened my eyes to this idea that we have real moods and false moods. And she's like, you know, you have a real mood, something happened and you're in a mood as a result. And then there are all those times where we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed or suddenly out of nowhere, we're irritable, we're angry, we're sad, we're anxious for seemingly no reason. And if we could really omnisciently peek under the hood of the car in the body, Mm -hmm. what we would see is that in that moment, there is a physical state of imbalance whether it's a stress response induced by a blood sugar crash or we're inflamed and cytokine inflammatory messengers are communicating to the threat detection centers in our brain that we are under threat. Maybe we're just sleep deprived. And so there's a physical state of imbalance that's creating that state that feels like what we call anxiety. Mm -hmm. And our brains are meaning makers. You know, if you give us a piece of paper that has two dots and a line on it, we're like, I know what that is. I see a face. Mm -hmm. And that's our brain making meaning out of symbols. And when we have a blood sugar crash that induces a stress response that feels like our, you know, our heart rate increases, our breathing becomes more rapid and shallow, and we have cortisol rushing through our veins, our brain is all too happy to swoop in with a narrative and be like, I know why I'm anxious right now. It's because that email really has left me feeling unsettled and the world is barreling towards certain destruction. And these truths, these stressors in our lives, they're always true. But in that moment, the reason it feels overwhelming is actually it has a physical cause. And I like that because I find that to be a more hopeful message and it gives us a very straightforward path out. So in a much more concise explanation, false anxiety is avoidable anxiety. We don't need to be falling into these states of anxiety quite so often. Mm -hmm. So I love that, that, that concept. This is avoidable. This is overcomable. This is dealable with. We can do something about it. We have agency over this false anxiety. You mentioned blood sugar dysregulation as being one component of it for many people. What are some other drivers of false anxiety? 
Yeah. So there are several. In the book, I even actually create this little cutout. I think I call it the false mood inventory. And the idea mm-hmm. is like, you could just tear this out of the book and put it on your refrigerator because yeah. we're in a false mood. You know, when we're in that kind of tunnel vision moment, we don't have the presence of mind to be like, hmm, is this my blood sugar or am I sleep deprived or am I, you know, hungover? But so it's nice to have an inventory that cues us. Um, the fallout effects of alcohol are very common culprit, sleep deprivation, inflammation, eating something our body doesn't tolerate. I think that there's a relationship to technology, which I include under the umbrella of false moods, where if we are just kind of coming up from a hole of scrolling, we can sometimes be in a state of really dysregulated mood from that. I even think that there's a relationship or anybody who's taking any psychiatric medication, it's helpful to be aware of the pharmacologic nadir, which is fancy term for like that point in your body where you've metabolized the medication and you're really due for your next dose. And for a lot of my patients, that's actually a a moment of what I would call false anxiety, where they just feel Mm -hmm. so on edge and uneasy. And what their body is really communicating is I'm due for my next dose. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just knowing that can be so grounding and helpful rather than the world is ending. It's like, it's just time to take your Lexapro. Yeah. Right. So what role does under the umbrella of false anxiety, what role does past trauma play into that? Yeah, I really do an unsatisfactory tap dance to try to explain where I think trauma falls in the false anxiety, true anxiety dichotomy. I think it's really exists at the interface. There's a true anxiety component to trauma and true anxiety, which we haven't defined yet. I think of it more as purposeful anxiety. This is our inner compass. It's our sense of what we're feeling really drawn to. And it's kind of a deep inner truth that's telling us, hey, something's not right here in our own mm-hmm. lives, in the world at large. Please slow down and pay attention to this. Take mm-hmm. steps accordingly. So trauma, there's a truth to it. It's, it was a time in your life where things really were not okay. I think yeah. there is a false component to it though, which is that with trauma, really at the level of the limbic system, it's almost like the foot is stuck on the accelerator. It's stuck on the gas pedal. And so everything, we perceive everything through this lens of hypervigilance and seeing threat where there may not be threat. And it can just make everything feel so uncomfortable and unsafe. And so the false anxiety component of trauma is how do we access our limbic system and really reprogram it so that it doesn't perceive threat where there is none. Mm, I love that. One of the most important steps you can take in bolstering your immune system is getting quality sleep and giving your body what it needs to heal and recover. A product that I love in this space to support a great night's sleep is Ned's best-selling sleep blend. It's brand new and improved, offering an even greater night's sleep. They remain committed to making all of their products more simple and effective, and they've done just that with their new sleep blend. This new formulation blends CBN, a powerful cannabinoid that promotes sleep with 750 milligrams of USDA certified organic CBD from the purest single source hemp flower extract and organic and wildcrafted botanicals traditionally used for sleep. The new sleep blend has 24% more sleep inducing botanicals by weight than the previous version. As always, all of Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants grown by Jonathan, an independent farmer 
and his family in Colorado. It's Ned's birthday month. If you'd like to give their new and improved Sleep Blend a try, the Art of Being Well listeners get 21% off with code WILLCOLE for the month of March only. It's their best offer of the year. Visit helloned.com slash willcole to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash willcole to get 21% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the podcast and offering my listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Our next partner has a product that I've recommended for a long time. Athletic Greens is a nutrient-dense, convenient tool to support so many aspects of your health. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It's lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it also contains less than one gram of sugar, with no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, no artificial anything, while still tasting really good. It supports better sleep quality and recovery. It's the one thing with all the best things. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than that cold brew habit that so many people have. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's all you have to do. No need for a million different pills. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of Athletic Greens with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash willcole. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash willcole to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey guys, it's Hunter and Michaela, and this is the Model Citizen Podcast. We wanted to let the members of our community experience a different side of us that they see glimmers of, but never the full force. Exactly. We wanted a place where we could talk unfiltered about anything and everything, including our lives and experiences in the modeling industry, beauty, fashion, dating, sex, marriage, a dash of political commentary, and of course, pop culture, honey. We're going all the way in. Tune in every Thursday for a giggle, a laugh, and maybe even a tear or two. You've just found your new best friends, and we're so happy to have you. What are some things that people can do? And obviously you go into detail in the book. If we're talking about false anxiety, you mentioned in the book, I like this term, the hangxiety. Am I saying that right? Hangxiety, yeah, yeah. like a ha- hangry anxiety. Like what are some things that people can do to start moving the needle in the right direction? Yeah, we have hanger, right? Like that has been a, a cultural shift for us to recognize that we, when we pick a fight with our partner, we might just need a snack in that moment. And so anxiety is another one where I see so many of my patients, they feel overwhelmed by a sense of doom and that everything doesn't feel good in their lives, worry, rumination. And in fact, it's in the moment when their body is on the downswing from, you know, the blood sugar roller coaster of modern life. And it's no surprise, you know, your audience knows this all too well, but we exist on a diet of refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes and rosé all day. And so we're all on this blood sugar roller coaster. 
And <laughs> of course, our blood sugar spikes, insulin chases it, and then the blood sugar crashes. And the body's response, which I don't know, I give it like an A minus in terms of evolutionary design. The body's response to a blood sugar crash is a stress response. We secrete cortisol, we secrete adrenaline, that cues the liver to break down our storage of starch in the form of glycogen. Mm-hmm. It gives us a feeling of urgency to go forage for food. It's a pretty decent design. But in modern life, we're just living like up and down, up and down, constantly in and out of this stress response. So, and that stress response just feels identical to anxiety. So what can we do to finally answer your question? I think that there's a lot of different approaches. For some people, it's an overhaul of how they feed themselves. And that can be anything from just erring on the side of eating more protein and healthy fats and getting your carbohydrates from starchy vegetables rather than refined carbohydrates, avoiding sugar, refined carbs, alcohol, all the way to like a more fundamental rehabilitation of how your body is is working with fuel sources, like with a ketogenic diet, with intermittent fasting, ways of retraining the body. But I have patients who look at me and like their eyes roll back their head when I start to talk to them about this. So it's like, okay, cool. Let's meet you exactly where you're at. I've had a lot of patients benefit from hack, which is to just take a spoonful of something like almond butter at irregular intervals throughout the day. I've had patients, I had one patient actually, he was bipolar and he wanted to manage his bipolar without medication. That's its own whole huge thing. But what really did the trick for him was using MCT oil. He would take a spoonful about every three hours. And that gave him this safety net of stable blood Mm -hmm. sugar, which will blunt any superimposed blood sugar crash. So Mm -hmm. even if you can't overhaul your diet or retrain your metabolism, there's still things you can do to give yourself a safety net of stable blood sugar. Yeah, yeah. And what comes to mind is, I think of all the patients that I'm seeing, especially at, at initial consultations, when I'm just getting to know them and you're in the same space when you're talking to people and thousands of people over the years, don't you find that many people are, we are in many ways culturally very disembodied in the sense of they don't even recognize their anxiety and anxiety exists on, on a spectrum. And if you really get introspective with them, then they can start to sense that background anxiety. But I, I, I should have asked this earlier, but I think this is a good point to just interject this, this anxiety spectrum that you see. Can you kind of speak to the people of the different manifestations of anxiety? Because they may not even really identify as this even being an issue for them. Yeah. And I think that that's shifting and it depends on the person. So I don't want to be like overgeneralizing, but I think that men are more likely to not necessarily identify what they're experiencing as anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something like muscle tension, low back pain, ruminative thoughts, um, racing thoughts as you're trying to fall asleep, the inability to relax, certainly worry, feeling of dread, or you could be calm and at baseline, but then out of the blue, you are suddenly overtaken with kind of more acute anxiety or panic attack. All of these are valid manifestations of anxiety, not to mention OCD traits or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, social anxiety, difficulty with public speaking or meeting new people or agoraphobia. Like there's so many ways it can show up. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, These days, it's almost, I think it actually is really comfortable and acceptable for women to identify subjectively with the feeling of anxiety. You sort of see that there's momentum around that on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. And I think I I have no problem with that. Like I see other psychiatrists being like, well, that's not real clinical anxiety, you know, and they're diluting the term. And I have no problem with that. I don't think we need to gatekeep the treatment because Mm. like I'm not 
my intervention is not something that comes with risk. So there's nothing to gatekeep there. If somebody has a subjective experience of, I am anxious, then for me, like the job is done. Diagnosis, anxiety, and it does not hurt to prioritize sleep and eat in a way that's more nutrient dense and less inflammatory to heal the mm-hmm. gut a bit, to rethink our relationship to technology or caffeine or alcohol. So there doesn't need to be like a hallowed ivory tower of whether or not you access these treatments based on your diagnosis. So for some Mm. people, if you're feeling anxious, I don't care whether or not you meet criteria for clinical anxiety, you're anxious in my book, it's meaningful. And for others, if your thoughts are racing before you're trying to fall asleep, if you're ruminating, if you're always worried, if you're carrying out a pit of tension in, in your stomach, these could be manifestations of quote unquote anxiety. Mm, Well said. You mentioned the cortisol and the hypothalamic adrenal axis and, and these mechanisms. And you also touched upon the limbic system, which I don't think it's enough conversation amongst people, even in the podcast world. Can you define the limbic system so people can know? I mean, my listeners are very nerdy <laughs> along with me. So they, they maybe want to learn about the limbic system and the autonomic nervous system and how they play a role physiologically with anxiety, specifically this false anxiety. Yeah. So the limbic system, let's see if I even get this right. I need to take (laughs) out my principles of neuroscience book, but basically it's this really primitive region in our brain. I believe in sort of the midbrain and it's, it's structures like the hippocampus, the amygdala, the thalamus. And it's doing a lot of, it's, it's kind of this train station where a lot of information is coming in. A lot of information is coming out and it's really concerned with our survival. And it's kind of orchestrating ways of consolidating memory and being on the lookout. One person I spoke to recently described it as the the amygdala is like this little watchtower that's just constantly on the lookout for threat. And it sees a squiggly line on the ground. It's like, is it a snake? And it's just always thinking like, where are the threats? And for some of us, because of our life experiences, we just have like an limbic system humming along and being like, you know, sometimes there will be threats and sometimes it's copacetic out there. And if you've had trauma, especially if you weren't adequately supported, if there wasn't a way to really process or metabolize that trauma, the limbic system has every reason, you know, I don't blame the limbic system. It has every reason to just like leave the key in the ignition, foot on the gas pedal. It's just like, it's not safe here. It's not safe Mm -hmm. in this world. It's not safe to be in this body. And sometimes let's be real. Sometimes life continues to not be safe. Mm -hmm. So there's no problem with the limbic system there. There's a problem with the environment but I think that sometimes it ends up being what was an adaptation in childhood has gone on to become a maladaptation. And now you want to access it on the level of the limbic system. And I think a really key principle there is that we think, okay, you have trauma, you need to go to therapy and talk about it. And what I find is that talking and rehashing is sometimes at best, not necessarily all that therapeutic and at worst can be re-traumatizing. And what you really want to do to effectively manage trauma is access it on a much less verbal level. It's a level of the body. And so treatments like somatic experiencing therapy, EMDR, even something like DNRS, which I think stands for a dynamic neural retraining Training system. system. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I love it. It's great. Love DNRS, yeah. And it's really impactful. And that's what I find actually moves the needle for my patients with trauma. To answer your question about the autonomic nervous system, this is just, this is everything. We need to understand our nervous system kind of has these two major branches. And on the one side is our sympathetic tone. That's kind of our fight, flight, freeze. 
And then we have our parasympathetic tone, rest, digest, relax, repair. And I tend to think that the design of animal bodies was that we should generally be spending about 80, 90% of the time in that parasympathetic tone. And then once in a while, a leopard comes around the corner. It's life or death. We are in a peak acute stress response. And then once the verdict of that situation is determined, then we can go back to parasympathetic tone. And the tricky thing about modern life is that we've exactly flipped the script and we are in a kind of chronic low-grade stress response about 90% of the time. And then maybe if we happen to do a yoga class, by the end of an eight-minute shavasana, you might have touched parasympathetic tone for a, a second of your life. Brilliantly, brilliantly said. So two things that you mentioned here that I know are hot topics and maybe, you know, it's it definitely controversial for some people, but the alcohol conversation. Every time I post about alcohol, it's like the comment section is insane. Yeah. So what's what's the problem that you're seeing with alcohol out there when it comes to its implication with false anxiety? Yeah. So, I mean, alcohol in a way, I feel like we'll almost get to a point where it's no longer a controversial conversation. It's just an uncomfortable conversation. Like the data yeah. is in it. The the, the healthiest amount of alcohol to drink is zero. And when it comes to longevity and brain health and cancer risk and mood and sleep quality. So like we used to have this marketing that was like, you know, five ounces of red wine a day. That's what's heart healthy. And that's what's like yeah. the boss babe, you know, like feminist choice. And the fact and I, my friend, Holly, Holly Whitaker wrote an incredible book on this called Quit Like a Woman. Like that was marketing and it was biased. It was funded by the wine and spirits industry. And so, you know, we always have to follow the money and know who's telling us our public yeah. health messaging. So basically with anxiety, it's so important to understand the neurotransmitter GABA. We talk a lot about serotonin. Like that's the one that we've been indoctrinated with to think about when it comes to mental health. I think it was like in the 90s where there was Zoloft mm -hmm. commercials and there were like bubbles of serotonin. They're like, oh, your <laughs> serotonin is low. Take this pill and, you know, get the healthy level of serotonin again, as if mental health could ever be so simple. But yeah. GABA is an equally important neurotransmitter when it comes to anxiety. It is our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter of the central nervous system. And to translate that into English, it basically means it's the neurotransmitter that helps us feel calm. It helps us feel like we're okay and we're going to be okay. And I think GABA is an endangered species of modern life. There are bacteroidae species that we're supposed to have in our gut that help us manufacture GABA. A lot of us are missing them for all the reasons that are the diverse, diverse ecosystems of our gut flora have been decimated from antibiotics to, you know, it's chlorinated tap water. I wonder that that could be yeah. a factor as well. And the thing about GABA is that there are two main substances that are common in modern life that are kind of our GABAergic agents. It's alcohol and it's the benzodiazepines. That's things like Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Valium. And they both rush the brain with GABA. And that's why we like these things. It feels good. It's a warm hug from the devil. And so mm -hmm. we feel GABA, we feel okay. And we're like, I like the feeling of that. Mm -hmm. And if it ended there, that'd be great. I'd be like, you know what? As a psychiatrist, my tool is to just put everybody on wine and Xanax, but it doesn't end there. And the problem is, is that the brain is not so interested in whether or not we're relaxed. It's interested in survival. So it wants to reclaim homeostasis. It does that differently with alcohol and benzos. With benzos, it kind of boards up our GABA receptors. So then when we withdraw from the benzo, we have normal levels of GABA, but 
abnormal or low levels of GABA receptors. It's almost like our brain can't hear the GABA. With alcohol, the way our brain reachieves homeostasis is by converting the GABA into a different neurotransmitter called glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that makes us feel on edge. And that's why if we've had a few drinks at dinner, then around 3 a.m., we kind of wake up, we're tossing and turning, we're headachy, we don't sleep well. That's the glutamate conversion effect. Got it. So next topic that I that's within something that you mentioned earlier that I'd like to dig a bit deeper is technology. What's the data look like when it comes to technology, our relationship with technology, and anxiety? Yeah, well, the data, it's correlative, but basically we see this huge spike in everyone sort of increasing their levels of depression and anxiety right around the time that smartphones went from being a rarity to everybody suddenly had one. And I think that what we're seeing is it's happening especially in younger people. And it's sort of, there are certain effects that are even especially in young females. And so basically the, the sort of compare and despair and the FOMO feelings that social media can create seem to impact females even more than males. And I think that it's working in 50 different ways on our mental health. And one way that I think is kind of very straightforward and easy for us to really grasp is even just its impact on our sleep because our whole circadian rhythm, our sleep-wake cycle is cued by light. And we evolved on the savanna of evolution where if it was nighttime, it was by definition dark out. And that's what helps our brain know it's nighttime. That's how we secrete melatonin and get sleepy and sleep deeply. And in modern life, after the sun goes down, rather than only being able to see fire and moonlight, now we have overhead lights and ambient light pollution, and we share our couch with a laptop with a spreadsheet open, and then we bring our phones into bed with us. <laughs> so that factor alone, just the fact that our phone is our lifeline and our comfort object, and it's what we bring into bed and we scroll, it's, it's the endless scroll effect. So we're not getting appropriately tired because we're not really getting understimulated at bedtime. We're, we're getting looped in because we live in the attention economy and brilliant companies have figured out just don't put a natural stopping point there and keep giving them hits of dopamine or hits of fear and uncertainty and we'll just stay rubbernecking. And then also the blue light that emits from our screen is going straight through our eyes up to the superchiasmatic nucleus in our brain. And it's telling that internal clock, good morning, the sun is rising, even if it's 11 p.m. And so it's getting really hard for us to get tired at the right time and to sleep well. Got it. Got it's all an effect of technology. Yeah. Right, right. People often ask me on social media, my patients ask me, what are some healthy snack ideas? What's your snack, Dr. Wilkel? <laughs> and a snack that I love without a doubt, you all know this. If you've been following me for any amount of time, what's the snack that I talk about? It's Paleo Valley's grass-fed beef sticks. And by the way, anything that I ever recommend, it's because I love it. I recommend it to patients or both, and this is no exception. These grass-fed beef sticks are quality. This is a gut-healthy snack. Most meat sticks can upset your stomach or disrupt digestion, likely due to the inflammatory side effects of something called encapsulated citric acid, which is used in most meat snacks. Instead, Paleo Valley beef sticks are naturally fermented, which creates probiotics for a balanced, healthy gut and eased digestion for you. They have many delicious flavors. They have summer sausage, they have original, they have teriyaki, they have jalapenos with real jalapenos in it. If I had to pick my favorite, and it's 
difficult to pick my favorite flavor of these, but my favorite has to be the jalapeno and the teriyaki. It's sweetened with honey. So freaking good. You have to check these out. All you have to do is head on over to paleovalley.com, enter code Dr. Will, that's D-R-W-I-L-L, code Dr. Will at checkout for 15% off your first order. Again, that's paleovalley.com, enter code Dr. Will for 15% off your first order. When you do what you love, like running, working out, eating good foods, racing, enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. Inside Tracker can really help you. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way toward reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. As a functional medicine practitioner, I realize so much, now more than ever, people want to get to the root cause of why they feel the way that they do. Then I realize not everybody's my patient. Maybe they're listeners to the podcast that are my patient or people on social media. They want access to the reasons of why they feel the way that they feel as well. They want to live their optimal life. And that's why I love what Inside Tracker is doing. It's giving people agency over their health. And I, even if they do end up setting up a consult with me, I can look at the amazing data that you get from Inside Tracker to really take your health to the next level. So you have to check this out, whether you're my patient or not. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Again, that's insidetracker.com slash art of being well to get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Again, that's inside, I N S I D E T R A C K E R.com slash art of being well. Insidetracker.com slash art of being well. Let's transition now to, to true anxiety. What you, you call it in the book, purposeful anxiety. So how is this different from false anxiety? What's, what's the deal with true anxiety? Yeah, so the false anxiety, it's avoidable anxiety. Like we could just eradicate that and we'd all be the better for it. If we just weren't coming into these unnecessary stress responses, we just walk away from it. We don't need it. It serves no purpose in our life. It's creating unnecessary suffering. True anxiety is not something I think we should be pathologizing. It's not really something we could medicate away. We, we can't gluten-free or decaf our way out of it. It's, what? It's, right? Can you imagine? <laughs> doesn't solve doesn't everyone's solve, problems? It solves all, 99 problems gluten-free. But I think that when it comes to true anxiety, this is that little whisper from within us that's saying, hey, you have a unique perspective. You have unique gifts. And there's a contribution that we want you to carry out in this world. And no pressure here. This doesn't have to be grand. This could mean like we need you to step up and be more present for your grandmother who's feeling lonely and isolated. It could be you're supposed to be Beyonce, get to work, you know, or everything in between. And I think that we just need to hear that whisper. And it can feel like anxiety because it feels a little bit like something is incomplete here. But if we slow down and get quiet and pay attention and actually listen to that whisper and honor and, and trust it, trust what it has to say, start to take steps accordingly, it doesn't feel like anxiety anymore. It can transmute into more of a feeling of purposefulness. And then we feel like we're on our path. We're taking steps to carry out a purpose. 
And I really don't mean to make that heavy duty. Like we don't all have to be constantly saving the world or to be every kind of activist. It's just that we don't want to go through our lives on autopilot and half asleep. We want to be connected to some degree of awe and meaning and purposefulness and feeling a bit guided. And that's its own whole conversation around like people's relationship to guidance and our worldview around that. And by no means, I'm not interested in proselytizing. Like I'm just interested in encouraging people to at least ask the questions of where do you stand on this? What feels true for you? Right. And you say in the book that true anxiety can be a superpower. Yeah. And really, I think that says a lot. Yeah. Um, Can I speak to that for a second? Of course. Go say it. It's almost become like a common cliche at this point where like anxiety is a superpower. And if you have anxiety, you're kind of like, what do you even mean by that? I can tell you're trying to like, please me. But like, it doesn't feel like a superpower. It feels uncomfortable. Like I don't, it's a nuisance. I want to get rid of my anxiety. But the way I mean it is that I think we're all on a spectrum of like, some people are here to be kind of like life naturals. Things come easily. And you're like, you're supposed to be our pilot or our surgeon and be unflappable and emotionally even. It's great. We need you. But some people are here to be our anxious members of the human race. And it's, that's not like something we should be shaming or pathologizing or being like, you're too sensitive. They're really here to save us as well. And I love the research by late zoologist, Diane Fossey, where she found that in these tribes of primates, she was looking at chimpanzees, the more anxious members who would like not sleep as well and kind of be on the peripheries of the tribe looking out at night, when she removed those chimps from the tribe, the whole tribe died. And so basically they were there to keep everybody safe. And I think our anxious folks are the canaries in the coal mine of modern life. Hmm. They're the early adapters to be like, hey, Roundup isn't agreeing with my body. Or, hey, like this, you know, I need an air filter in my home. They're the ones who are feeling the poisonous, the the sort of the poisons of modern life and alerting the rest of us. Like we might want to look at this and maybe course correct a bit. I've never thought about it like that. And when you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, and you talk about it in the book, how we are hardwired to be part of a tribe. And you think of that as a global tribe that's right now, because we don't have the early tribes that we came from. In that vein of meaningful connection and how that is a tool to really deal with anxiety, what are some ways we can start to cultivate meaningful connection? Community is the number one. Like if you needed to skip my book and read only one page. It's just like, just figure out how can you prioritize community? And the tricky thing is all the things about going gluten-free and reducing your caffeine. It's so prescriptive and it's very actionable. How do you increase community in your life is a much tougher path, but it still has to be the number one priority. And even within it, there's a bunny hop. You kind of have to like figure out boundaries and figure out how to stay true to yourself while also prioritizing connection with others. It's, it's tough. But I think that just personally, what I've learned is that we're all busy and it's hard to actually maintain the connections with the people that we love as we get older, as we have families, as we have careers, as we have mortgages. It's, it's tricky. And I think that we have to lower our standards for how we connect with each other. I love the idea of cooking somebody a meal and like busting out the fine china, not that I own fine china and like, you know, making it nice and special and and having that be a love language of of sort of showering somebody with that offering. And if I intended to do that, I would see people like once a year. And so instead we say, hey, everybody come over. Let's hang out in our living room. We're going to order takeout. There are going to be Legos around. Sorry if you step on one. (laughs) It's painful. It's really quite painful. (laughs) And so to basically just say, the goal here is not 
fancy. It's not to impress anyone. It's not to fool anybody that we've got our life together. It's really just connection. And how can we create the conditions for that and and just put it out there? Kind of, if you build it, they will come model. Mm -hmm. Got it. And these are all ways to start to really strengthen our parasympathetic, the resting, the digesting, the restoration system, right? That's exactly right. Because we are, as human beings, social creatures. It's a non-negotiable, even if we're super introverted, which like that's, that's totally right. It's like- Me, it's me. (laughs) The best humans. And the thing about it is that we, like if we were cats, we could go it alone. That's fine. You can just be an island, but human beings, we're just hardwired to feel safe when we're held in community. And if we were ostracized or shunned from the tribe, that was a life or death situation. We cannot mm-hmm. survive alone. On the Savannah, we were not the strongest. We were not the fastest. We were just the most cooperative. We mm-hmm. figured out how to work together. And as a community, we could survive. And I think that that's just so deep in our hardwiring that we only really feel safe and at ease and in a parasympathetic tone when we know we're really held by our community. Mm. Wow. Another concept that you talk about in the book that I'd love to educate people on is divine play. What's what's divine play? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I even made up that term or what, but I mean, it's basically play, but I consider that to be divine. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> I we just get out of the habit of play, you know, life gets so serious. And, you know, I think we all have to do our Brene Brown homework. Like we need to know how vulnerability is not weakness, it's courageous. And that to have a fulfilling life, to be happy, we need to show up wholeheartedly. And I think part and parcel with that is goofiness and playfulness. We need to laugh at ourselves. We need to be immersed in a state that's not just so cerebral and so concerned with our image or our persona. So whether you want to play with a dog or a baby or your partner or, you know, put on Whitney Houston alone and dance in your living room in your underwear. You just have to have playfulness in your day-to-day life. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This book is rich with so many actionable steps. So I want to now talk about a big topic. It, it, It could be a whole separate conversation, but really I know that you know the science. I know that you know so much about this, this field of psychedelics and the emerging science there and the appropriate use of it in a clinical setting. What what are you, are you excited about the science around psychedelics? What can people look out for? So excited about the science around psychedelics. I mean, I think I'm not alone in my field of psychiatry to feel a little bit disenchanted with the treatments that we have up until this point. And that's largely what drove me to taking a functional medicine approach to mental health was feeling like all of the Zyprexa and Lexapro in the world was not helping my patients sufficiently thrive. And so what we're seeing with the psychedelic science is a paradigm shift in how people can get well. And it works on a number of levels. And when I say the psychedelics, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to this. Everything from ketamine, which is already available, legal, there's clinical settings that people can access today, to things like psilocybin, um, and even ayahuasca, um, and MDMA, which is a slightly separate category. And we have good research, and all of these things are coming down the pipeline, though not soon enough. And so basically, some of the ways that they work are in ways that are familiar to us from the SSRIs. Like they're active at serotonergic receptors, the 5-HT2A receptors, and it has this enduring antidepressant effect, though without the kind of numbness or withdrawal that we sometimes see with antidepressants. 
And it's anti-inflammatory. That's always like your audience appreciates that. It increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which increases neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which is very psychobabble for we can grow and change yeah. and adapt. And that's so right. helpful when we're stuck, when we're entrenched in certain patterns or feeling alienated in our lives. But what to me is most exciting about the role that psychedelics can play in mental health is what's called the spiritual, the mystical experience hypothesis. And that's basically where in the proper set and setting, someone can somewhat reliably have a peak life mystical experience. And I like that because it's not here to be like, let's convince everyone to believe in God. It's more like, let's help shake everyone up from what we think we know. Mm -hmm. And can we just open up to the possibility that there might be something really beyond our comprehension happening here? I find that that takes the pressure off of this one mortal life that we have. Yeah. And it helps me at least, and I think some of my patients, feel like this universe has a little bit more love, a little bit more benevolence, and a little bit more guidance and magic to it. And mm -hmm. I find that that can be very comforting when things are really hard. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Is there any psychedelic that you're the most excited about, or is it pretty much all have, like, what are the main differences between them? I love all of God's psychedelics, but I do think that I think that I have a soft spot for ayahuasca just because I've I've found that to be the most profoundly healing for me. And I really think of it as it's medicine, like on a purely physical vibrational level. And it's so sacred and gives you a portal to connect with the spirit realm and which I think is medicine in its own right. And so it's really deep work, it's really beautiful work. And you know, all the caveats. It's not safe in all settings. It has major contraindications with medications. I think if someone has more of a chaotic brain, it's truly contraindicated, but it can be so therapeutic. And I would love for it to just be continued to be further researched and understood. Got it. And again, that's a whole separate conversation. I'll have you back anytime you want to. We could dig deep in all of the things we've talked about today. This part of the podcast, as you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. Well, this is Dr. Ellen Vora's Art of Being Well. And we have really gleaned that through this conversation, but I'd like to just pick your brain on some favorite healthy stuff. Are you up for this part? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So first thing, you're stuck on an island. You're looking at, you have one food and one food only, and you're looking for nutrient density and survival. What would that food be, Dr. Vora? Oh, wow. I mean, we need to switch it up over time just because variety is the spice of life. But let's yeah, say, right, right, right. <laughs> let's say, I mean, it'll get me, this will, there'll be problems down the road with vitamin A toxicity, but I think I would go for chicken liver pate initially. I just want to yeah. be like mother nature's multivitamin, get yeah. all that, all those micronutrients and I'd be good for a while until way too much vitamin A over time. <laughs> yeah, right. But I love it. I mean, you talk about nutrient density. That's that's the answer. Is there, a lot of people ask me, because we talk about organ meats from time to time, and then they're like, what's, I don't like the taste of it. Is there, yeah. do you have any hack on yeah. like, from a taste standpoint? Yeah, I don't like the taste of it either. So I have a butcher down the street from where I live that does make a nice pate. So I don't like buy the raw liver and process it myself. I would yeah. never want to eat liver again. So the pate, yeah. it, they they make it nice. They do the right seasoning and it tastes good. And I still kind of have to force it down a little bit, but I feel so yeah. much better when I do that it's worth it. And there's something called dirty rice where you can cook rice with a little bit of liver, you can use bacon if you like. You can use ground beef. You can put in five spice and cilantro and a whole lot of ghee. 
And that's actually a really delicious one pot dish that sneaks the organ meats into your diet and you don't really know you're eating liver. So that's my go-to. Love it. Love it. Great, great idea. All right. Next food, completely other side of the spectrum. You had one food only for the rest of your life, but it's purely on taste alone. Remove the health benefits from the equation. What What's that one delicious food that you think of? Pizza. I, I love pizza. Pizza's pizza. up there for me. Yeah. For sure. What's like, you, you're in New York. What's the best pizza in New York? Do you have a favorite one? I have such a non-answer to this. There's a place around the corner from where I live called the Village Pizzeria. I, it's not one of the fancy ones. It's not one of the famous ones. I've had all of those. They're delicious. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a sort of definitive New York pizza taste. And I think it's like worse quality ingredients go into like making that taste. And that's <laughs> what really does it for me. And I will be honest, like I have had a slice of that pizza as recently as eight, nine years ago. Like it's not part of my life anymore. I yeah. don't do well with it, but I do freaking love it. I love it. There is a gluten-free place that I think of all the time. <laughs> I, I dream about this, but since the pandemic, I haven't been back to it, but it's, it's, in, it's in Toronto. It's oh. not New York. It's in Toronto, Ontario. Pizza Libretto, which I think is like a chain there. There's multiple locations, but so good. My 15-year-old son always talks about it too. But Okay. Field trip. Let's coordinate. Field trip. Pizza field trip. <laughs> all right. Next question. What are two supplements that you personally, that's been, that been a helpers for you personally? Yeah, I'm pretty like try to minimize supplements in my daily life, but I, the, the sort of non-negotiables for me are cod liver oil and magnesium glycinate. Yeah. So cod liver oil, I like it because it gives me my omega-3s, but it also has the fat soluble vitamins A, D, yeah. E, and K. And so it really kind of rounds out certain micronutrients that are hard to get otherwise. Right. Yeah. Is there any specific, what's your favorite way to get cod liver? Do you have a brand that you like? Or I, I like this brand called Rosita Foods. There was Love a, Rosita. Yeah. Yes. There was a while when I used to take the one that, I forget what it was called now. It was called like Blue Ice Royal something. Yeah. Blue Pastures or yeah. something like that. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. then there was maybe some controversy around their transparency of their ingredients. Yeah. So I switched to Rosita Foods and haven't looked back. And I really, you can taste the quality. I think they do operate with integrity. Yeah. Got it. All right. Next question. What is your latest non-food, non-supplement biohack or wellness tool that's been a, a really help to you oh, personally? Infrared sauna, hundred percent. And a close second is orange plastic glasses. What is this? Orange plastic. Oh, the glasses. I was thinking yeah. of actual like glasses, like you know, orange plastic glasses. <laughs> Drinking from plastic. Drinking cool. from orange uh, plastic glasses. Yeah. The blue blocking glasses, which, you know, these ones like they don't have I mean, to look like you're about to do <laughs> metallurgy, but you know, these are the ones that are cheap on Amazon. But I, I love this kind of intervention. Anything that's non it's inexpensive, non-invasive, and it works. And you know, like the squatty potty and the blue blockers that, that nails that demographic. Oh my gosh. Blue blockers and squatty potties, people. We'll put the links uh, in the show notes so people can check all of both of those out. Great, great ideas. All right. What's your favorite way to exercise? It's hiking. Hiking. What's your favorite like place to hike that you've been? Colorado. Nice. Mm. I liked, did you go on the hike in Arizona when we went? Yeah, like, in the that's mornings? right. Oh, I no, I know. That. I never woke up for the morning hike, no, no, no. Oh, but I, I went on, on a Dr. walk Bora. alone. <laughs> no, hell no. Like, Not like my chronotype. 5 a.m. <laughs> desert hike with Dr. Wilkel and, <laughs> and company. <laughs> All right. Next question. If you could only use one skincare product, what would that skincare product be? 
Well, that's easy because I basically only use one skincare. Uh, perfect. <laughs> I mean, if I'm being really honest, my one skincare product is tap water, but sometimes <laughs> I try to be better about this. And I put this, I don't know, it's like a oil blend that I'll put on at bedtime, but I'm a very minimalist skincare person. I I find that my skin is happiest when I'm doing the least to it. Yeah. I've heard that from lots of people uh, pairing it. I think it's smart because this we overdo it with the skin barrier and irritate it so much. I'll add one weird tip is that once in a while, if I'm feeling like the air is dry, maybe I let myself get a little run down or inflamed, I will do a Manuka honey mask. It's messy as all get out. Like you can't lie down with it. You can't do anything. You're full of stickiness, but it's really soothing. And I think does a lot to heal the skin barrier. Are you looking for a specific grade. I know they rate the the Manukas or just the higher, the better, probably. That's above my pay grade. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Next question. What's the weirdest wellness thing that you've done that you're willing to talk about on a podcast <laughs> with me? I guess I had to be honest what came into my mind first. I, I have... know about you, Dr. Vora. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? Well, <laughs> what, what, what came into my mind is that I have dabbled in the coffee enema. Enema is always people's answer with that question. Yeah. I don't think it's that weird. Maybe that just shows how weird I am. Well, we're such a, like, there's a phobia around that in our culture. Like, I'm actually not at all squeamish about this. I just know how people react when I say it. But like, Mm. to me, there's no squeamishness and it's really, it's kind of nice. You feel really good afterward, but it's a whole Mm -hmm. ordeal. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. I don't do it personally, but I know people that have done it and it, it's a, it's a tool for some people to consider. Right? What's your answer to that question? Oh, man. I honestly, I, 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 that's a good, I've never thought about it for myself. It's so subjective because I really don't think I do anything that weird. I'm pretty middle of the road with, with things. I've done ozone therapy mm-hmm. before. I guess that's kind of out of the box a little bit. It's not that weird. I don't think it's weird, but. All right, next question. What's a free or low cost thing in wellness that people can do that you feel like doesn't get enough airtime? Early bedtime. Love it. What's yeah. what's a good bedtime? What, what do you recommend? The research that looks at the remaining hunter-gatherer societies on earth seem to show that humans have somewhat of an optimal bedtime three hours after sunset. And I like that. That feels so honest to me that it does vary by time of year, which feels true. Mm-hmm. It varies by where you are on the globe. But basically the sun sets, you hang out by the fire, you socialize, you eat, maybe you make love, and then you go to bed because it's not really that safe to be up and about in the dark overnight. And that's also as the temperature drops to cue our circadian rhythm for us to get sleepy. So aiming for three hours after sunset, really looking for your tired signs around that time, like yawning, rubbing your eyes, being like staring blankly at the wall, and also noticing what's called our overtired signs. Like if you've had kids, you learn the hard way that there is such a thing as being overtired where you push past the point when you're perfectly tired and then you're suddenly like, you have a second wind, you're tired but wired and you're like cleaning the kitchen. So notice that. And that's usually a sign that you waited too long to go to bed. And that's when we start to toss and turn and find it's really hard to fall asleep in that state. So early bedtime. Love that answer. All right, final question. What is a book that you've read in the last year? And obviously everybody's going to get the anatomy of an anxiety of anxiety, but for you personally, what's a book that you've read in the last year that's really been eye-opening for you on a personal level? 
Okay. So, I mean, I did, I don't know if it's, it's maybe more than a year now, but I did really love How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. I'm not saying anything revolutionary there. And I'm currently reading fiction for the first time in a really long time. And because, you know, in our industry, there's always a new book, there's always more to learn. And you could just have a stack this high on your bedside table of nonfiction books and just to always keep up. And a friend of mine got me for our secret Santa, this book called I Am, I Am, I Am. It's technically kind of a memoir, so not perfectly nonfiction, but, or not perfectly fiction. But I forgot that for me to be a good psychiatrist and a good practitioner to hold space for everything my patients are going through, you know, it's not all in the nonfiction details, you know, <laughs> like I can know everything about HLA types and infrared sauna technology. And the fact is like holding space for the complexities and the gray area of the human condition is easily the more important part of my job. So the tenderness of this memoir is helping me be a better doctor. Mm, beautifully said. My friend, I've loved this conversation immensely. How can people learn more about your work? How can they get the book? T- tell them all the things. So on Instagram, I'm at Ellen Vora MD. I think that's also my handle on places like Twitter and TikTok, although I'm less active there. But if you want a good laugh, you can see a boomer trying to make TikToks and (laughs) they're not good. And then my website is ellenvora.com and the book is called The Anatomy of Anxiety. And you can really buy it anywhere you like to buy books, but I'd love to plug like shopping smaller, finding black owned businesses and bookshops, indigenous owned bookshops is a really great way to spend that same dollars and, and support Black-owned businesses, Indigenous-owned businesses. So that's my vote. And I have links to that on my website. I will put all the links you just said in the show notes. Notes. People go to drwillcole.com, go to podcast. They can get all the things. My friend, I appreciate you so much. Thanks for, it's great seeing you in person next time, I hope. But come back anytime. Well, thank you for being the most heart of gold in the whole wellness industry. I love talking to you. Likewise, my friend. Thank you. At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Lauren. Lauren asks, she says, Hi, Dr. Will Cole. I've heard you talk about chronic viral infections in relationship with autoimmunity. Can you explain? I can definitely explain. So viruses, just like bacteria and other microbes in the human microbiome, uh, it's part of the human immune system. These things are not inherently bad. They everybody, statistically, it's about 95% of US adults have had exposure, for example, to Epstein-Barr virus, which is, there's a lot of conversation has been for the past years in the health and wellness space around Epstein-Barr virus. Now we can quantify on labs, and these are labs that are run for people around the world, not just because, just because you have antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem. So you always want to understand that the the labs and look at it in, in its full totality. And just because you have antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus, your immune system's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. So keep that in mind, that antibodies to viruses, whether that's Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus and her, or human herpes 6 virus or any other number of viruses. And I look at these 
labs all day long for patients. Positive antibodies doesn't necessarily mean a chronic viral infection. It means exposure to the virus at some point. And most people, most people's immune system are handling that quite well. And it's living in harmony with that person's immune system. Now, my patient population, they're struggling with things like autoimmune problems and chronic fatigue syndrome and different inflammatory problems. They have different methylation gene variants or different HLA gene variants. Their immune system, their bio-individual relationship with different things like viruses and microbes in their microbiome and other foods, foods that they're eating or mold toxins, et cetera, their immune system gets a little bit more irritated sometimes against these things, especially when there's a confluence of different factors. So I, without a doubt, have to be looking for reactivation of viral infections or chronic viral infections. So I have to look at a full viral panel to really understand, is this virus, no matter what virus we're talking about, is it playing a role in the perpetuation of the inflammatory autoimmune storm or if somebody's struggling with chronic fatigue syndrome or any other uh, type of problem that I'm looking at. But we have to understand there's a term that that we talk about in functional medicine. It's the bioterrain. It's what is the overall landscape of this person's health that is maybe a, a, a hospitable environment in which this virus can reactivate. So for example, looking at gut health is one thing that we have to understand. There's some studies, uh, some recent studies actually, and over the past decade or so, but recently I'm aware of a study was published in the medical journal Nature that found that certain microbes in our gut actually have a very, very fascinating superpower, if you will. They can actually reanimate and trigger, turn on dormant sleeping viruses that are lurking within the microbiome. Pretty fascinating. They actually release a molecule called colibactin. Colibactin actually has been shown to be able to summon these viruses and wake them up from their I'm in remission viral slumber, if you will. And these viruses, again, are linked to triggering different inflammatory problems. So the bioterrain, as it were, is we have to look at this person's gut health that's perpetuating these viral reinfections. Or another example of a biotrain facet that I'm taking into consideration with patients are things like mycotoxins, mold toxins. Mold toxins can, without a doubt, perpetuate the reactivation of chronic viral infections. Stress and trauma, looking at past trauma that's reliving in this person's body, that it's unresolved trapped trauma in their body. It's keeping these viruses reactivated. Or if they're getting poor sleep or they're going through a stressful season of their life currently, that can trigger the reactivation of these viruses. So you never want to hang your hat on one lab and say, well, the virus is my thing. And if I just dealt with the virus, all my problems would be solved. It's a piece of the puzzle. And we have to understand the environment in which this virus can reactivate. And viral reactivation does not happen in a vacuum. And we have to understand the full complexities of somebody's health. So that's the connection. And that's that's sort of my perspective clinically on chronic viral infections and its association with autoimmunity.
Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.